0: You know society, they like the way this guy makes ice cream, but the other guy, they don't like his ice cream that much, and they don't buy it, so it uh, fades out. What's that? Supply and demand. Free enterprise. Competition. The profit motive.
1: Down on the economy, stupid. Where is it? From
0: everywhere, everywhere.
2: Hello and welcome, it is new episode of Everyday Economics, hosted by Justin,
0: Lanny's Rowe
2: and Greg. In the news today, we're going back to one of the topics of our previous episode because we will talk about the strategic interactions that we can observe among the population with the new COVID regulations. And also the news of the week, if it's not the news of the year, this is Pfizer, which is announcing a vaccine against the COVID for very soon and we're going to discuss about the implication that it causes on the market. After that, we're going to talk about the main topic of the day, which is about oligopoly. And finally, Emric, one of our listeners, contacted us, and we will answer to his voice message. As a reminder, if you want to participate in the following episode by writing about something we said, or if you want to talk about a specific topic, please send us a voice message on Instagram, or by Messenger, or simply by email. And you may be in the next episode. And before starting this episode, if you want to support us, you can give us five stars on Apple Podcast, and it would be much appreciated.
1: Yes, hey everybody, this is the uh, tenth episode out of twelve, and uh, we have so far been refraining intentionally from speaking about the COVID pandemic and. We are letting loose today. This is going to be a full pandemic edition. We're going to talk about the pandemic problem, the measures, and possibly the uh, the, the the solution with the with the Pfizer vaccine. So, Lanny. Well,
0: and, and like Greg said, you know, since there was a vaccine announcement, we are running out of time to talk about this topic, <laughs> right? <laughs> or at least, hopefully. Um, so, the, where I want to start today was actually to. Um, follow up on something that we talked about in our in our last podcast, which was the topic of our last podcast uh, was uh, you know this uh, situation in, in game theory that we call the the prisoner's dilemma, um, really, which is just a way of representing that you know very often individuals are faced with a decision where they can pay a very small cost to themselves, which would lead to a benefit for society and. One of the problems that we run into all the time is that people don't want to pay this cost and we end up in these bad outcomes. And where this applies to the pandemic is, you know, even, you know, is with respect to people's propensity to follow the types of rules that we've set out uh, in order to try to prevent further spread of the disease. Uh, So, you know, one of the regulations is, you know, asking people to, you know, wear a mask, and so, you know, in Quebec, we've had, you know, mandatory mask regulations here for quite some time. But, you know, in British Columbia, where I'm from, they haven't had mandatory mask regulations. They've just asked people to wear masks. Really? And this is a really good example of, you know, the prisoner's dilemma at play in the real world, because wearing a mask is a relatively small personal cost but if you know everybody wears a mask right this is going to have a significant impact on the spread of the disease and benefit society as a whole whereas if everyone says you know what it's not worth it to me i'd be more comfortable not wearing one suddenly no one's wearing a mask the disease rages rampantly and you know we all experience the costs associated with this pandemic that we are all very familiar with so i don't want to induce uh, any more trauma than necessary by, by talking about all of the inconveniences about this, I'd rather talk about, you know, to what extent do we expect these types of restrictions to to work? Or that is, to what extent do we expect people to follow these types of restrictions, especially if they're just being put in place voluntarily? And can when we look at the real world and we see people reluctant to pay these small costs, um, you know, can we try to understand why they have this reluctance uh, in light of the, the discussion of the prisoner's dilemma last week.
1: Yeah, so what we know is that uh, because it is precisely a prisoner's dilemma that the, the dominant strategy or the thing that people are going to want to be very much tempted to do is to go for not wearing a mask, okay, for a lot of reasons, in particular that one reason is that you don't like to, to wear a mask, but uh, also the gains that you perceive from that gains that are very much intangible so there's this idea Yeah, yes there is this pandemic and it's a it's a huge problem but to what extent is my wearing a mask going to make a difference i think that's that's what a lot of people say and and this is not a, you know it's not a new debate we've, we've just been refraining from talking about it but there's this whole idea of you know you can if you make me wear a mask it's not just the cost of wearing the mask because you're taking away my freedom and this is a huge deal for me so i'm I'm going to refrain from um, from addressing that argument because I've been angry for this entire pandemic against people who who think that way. But uh, that's that's another reason that uh, that people might not want to wear a mask or might might be against these um, these rules.
0: But you know, it's not necessary to argue against it to see why this argument is driving. This phenomenon of people not wearing a mask right so it's just like you said it's it's as if they're experiencing an additional cost right Mm -hmm. so there's already the inconvenience of wearing the mask which I don't think anyone enjoys wearing a mask. Um, And it's hard to see how one person makes a big difference in the situation, and then if you add to that this additional cost of, you know, this is also imposing on my freedom, whether that's a reasonable thing to think or not, you can start to see why some people, you know, it's changing the calculus for them, right? If they didn't have this extra cost, maybe they're on board, but now with this extra cost, right, some people are, you know, not just not on board, you know, they're vehemently against uh, wearing a mask and think as a matter of policy, no one should be wearing a mask. Or, I mean, maybe they think just people should have the choice, I suppose. Mm-hmm.
1: But that's why then you need to have these fines, right? There are fines in, in Quebec if you don't wear a mask in certain places. And and this is to counterbalance the fact that people may not want to wear a mask in the first place. I mean some people, of course. There's some people that are very much uh understand there's some people that are very much understanding of the phenomenon. And, you know, no like you said, nobody likes doing that, but but people wear masks because they recognize that maybe just out of matter of respect, you know, this is this is what i do because i'm doing my share and uh you know there's not a lot we can do right now so that's that's it We're, wear masks stay indoors and just respect the regulations as long as they make sense i would say because some some things are not regulated but should be and some things are regulated and should not be necessarily so you know ex- I'm, I'm not calling against people so that people disobey but i mean uh, there are definitely this is def- just a matter of respect basically
0: Um, So so obviously, I think so, too. But but I also, you know, one of the things that always concerns me about these types of policies, whether they're policies around public health or policies around the environment, is I'm not a big believer in moralizing as a solution to these types of problems. And, you know, so I think that the approach they took in B.C. was, um, you know, it would be much better if everybody wore a mask. You know, it's good for you. It's good for your community trying to make the benefits salient trying to make the social consequences salient so that people will you know realize these things Um, whereas in quebec you know when they instituted the mandatory mask laws uh, in the summer it was if you violate this here is the penalty Um, and these are different approaches to trying to make this trade-off more salient and i tend to favor the one that has uh The explicit penalties, because when you don't have those explicit penalties, right? um, I think it's easier to slip, Um, and and to a certain extent, you know, this slippage is occurring for the reason that we talked about last week when I gave the example of you know destroying the nice green field on the way to get coffee.
1: Um, Yeah, but where I, 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 I'm I'm not entirely uh, in the same way as you are in the sense that I think that yes we need to have these regulations we need to have them enforced but you have to have some sort of bringing awareness to the population otherwise the rule is not going to be passed politically it's just not going to fly or if it is in place it's not going to be respected so i think there also has to be some awareness on the part of the population i'm not necessarily moralizing but like you said making making it more salient making it more concrete what it is that the problem is and what it is due to and how you can do something even if it's a small part.
0: So I guess I would have seen that more as like a political economy issue, right? Um so more like a way to avoid massive backlash from the population as opposed to a way to necessarily uh implement the policy itself. Uh obviously it's easier if you have a population that's on board with that policy uh than one that's not on board with the policy. So sa- trying to explain to them, you know, like why is this a good reason um is great to avoid, you know, like, you know, like a mass upheaval, Um, but, you know, in order to deal with the other margin, which is the people who don't really want to do it at all, you know, that's where you really need to have the explicit cost, which is, okay, maybe you don't agree with masks, you know, maybe you're not going to vote for the party that made you wear one, but you do recognize that if you break the rules, there's going to be a cost, and so, you know, you might as well just wear the mask.
2: But also, since the beginning of the episode, we have talked about masks, but I think we can actually observe the, the prisoner's dilemma in the other kind of regulations. Uh, for example, the for the restriction of not seeing other people indoors, uh, I believe that at the beginning of the pandemic, uh, everyone was scared about the situation, and so people were seeing it as a huge cost. And so the government and people were cooperating uh, with each other. But after a few months now, a lot of people perceive it as less risk than they used to, and so their cost benefits analysis is an incentive for them to to deviate from the initial cooperation. And if the government still want the cooperation to happen, well, maybe they should put higher fines or give more information about the risk.
1: I guess you're absolutely right. So you want There's two things you can do. You can either increase the fines themselves or increase the probability of getting caught. And, and uh, so basically, the enforcement, the uh, the, the number of police people that you put on the street whatever to, to to set out these fines so that's that's these are the two ways in which you can try to reestablish the the cost benefit and ratio in the favor of of actually re- respecting the uh, the measures
0: um, and actually so um you know where I, where I was trying to go before is that um there's the danger here of all of this unraveling if you don't enforce the rules Um, So if you just say, okay, pretty please, won't you, uh, you know, engage in good behavior and then some people don't engage in that good behavior, eventually some people on the margins say, well, you know, if they're having a big house party, I might as well have a big house party. And pretty soon, you know, because of the nature of an infectious disease, right, it starts to pick up steam. And so in this situation, you know, you really can't allow for that kind of um, like, like creep to occur. You, you need to try to, you know, enforce 100% compliance as far as you possibly can. Um, you know, it's not like littering. You know, if one person litters, it doesn't infect you. And now you're a litterer, right? So the stakes here in terms of trying to maintain the good outcome are much higher than if we were talking, for example, about like littering where, you know, maybe psychologically eventually people get tired of watching you know being the sucker Um, but here actually people get infected by the disease this is this is a problem and then they can become possible spreaders even to their small bubble that they were trying to maintain very carefully so you know the stakes here are, are, are much higher in some ways uh, versus other things. Now, obviously, you know, the environmental uh, problems that we're facing uh, are perhaps a bigger existential threat than COVID-19, um, but certainly in terms of the, the way it spreads, it's a bit of a different story.
1: Yeah, and I think the difference between environmental problems, environmental issues, climate issues, and uh, and here is that here you can actually see pretty, quick, pretty clearly who's obeying and who's not obeying the rules. You know, uh, you know, think about also, you know, just ordering stuff on Amazon. I mean, we talked about Amazon last week and that's, this has environmental consequences. It has consequences for, and we talked about the the workers, uh, worker conditions. And, and so there's, there's, a, there's reasons why you might want to do uh, more research and maybe buy local if you can. Right now it's more difficult, of course. But whatever you do in your own shopping decision is, is pretty much your, your own secret. And so versus whether you wear a mask or not in public, that is something that people can see, or whether you half-ass wear a mask with your nose sticking out, that's also something that people can see. And which is, I think makes it a, a bit different than, than these other issues.
0: So it's actually interesting you say that. I think we may have talked about this actually on a previous episode about um, British Columbia's new recycling uh, advertising campaign which was, uh, you know, what does this bottle say about you? Um, Which essentially is, you know, if you decide to throw the bottle in the trash rather than in the recycling bin, this is actually a mark against your character. And so what they were trying to do is get people to feel shame about it. And so I I think that, you know, we haven't seen so much of that sort of formally, right? Like the government hasn't come out and said, you know, you're a bad person if you don't wear a mask. Um, Obviously, you know, In social media, people say all sorts of things, Um, but, you know, potentially like this would be an effective strategy is just trying to get through to people that like you're not doing your part as a member of our society. If you don't do this, there is a kind of a passive aggressive uh,
1: ad campaign in the, in the subway, you know, you have all these drawings of, I think it's 12 or 16 ways to not wear a mask, you know, and there's, just don't be that guy kind of.
0: So. So I guess I've missed it because I never leave the apartment wow yeah
1: gotta live on the edge you know you gotta take a walk around the block sometime
0: (laughs) yeah yeah (laughs) absolutely
2: and so for that covid edition uh you surely haven't missed it this week because as the press said, uh, it may be the information of the decade. Uh, this is Pfizer, uh, a big pharma company, which announced a vaccine for in, in the following months is for, for the coronavirus. Yeah. So a few subjects that we could talk about could be about the, the impact uh, on that information on the markets because nobody got the vaccine yet, but uh, there's still a, a big impact on the market. For, for example, uh, companies such as Airbus, Lufthansa, EasyJet, or like the old companies or... Or big bank had the, the value increased uh, on the markets and uh, companies such as uh, food delivery or zoom or netflix um, have uh, seen their the value decreased uh, along the week
1: so 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 the, what we're seeing here is that basically all the companies whose stocks had skyrocketed at the beginning of the pandemic you know all these uh, online you know netflix and zoom were we're basically seeing uh, this a reversion where, where now their stocks are going down and all the companies whose stocks had been going down, like airline companies, their stocks are going back up. So in a way, it seems like it's a it's going back to normal. This information, which, you know it's it's still not clear when the vaccine's going to be out. It's still not clear whether this vaccine has actually been approved and, and how long it's going to take for people to actually get it. But it does already have an impact, even though the vaccine's not here. On on people's expectations, and I think that's that's what this information is about. Is it's changing people's expectations about how things are going to go in the mid to near future. Well,
0: I and mean, this is how you I mean stocks are supposed to work, right? Like the value of the stocks are supposed to reflect the fundamental value of the companies. Uh, so we can leave aside whether this actually works this way or not. Um, but in this case, you know, it seems to be working pretty well, right? So here's information that's positive for you know travel and. You know negative for sitting on your butt at home all the time and so you see that reflected in the price of these stocks um you know again like it's not like it's it's you know amazing or an amazing surprise that this is what would happen but it's always nice to see the the process work the way it's supposed to right which is you know the market is supposed to incorporate this information we're supposed to see movements in price uh you know according to what we would think this information tells us and that's what we observed. So I, I'm always sometimes relieved to see that things work the way they're supposed to.
1: Yay, we're economists. We're happy when markets work. That's. I don't know how to feel about this. Look, you know, I, I know that's the way that, it, of course, it's stuff that we teach. So we should definitely be be relieved that, that the core of what we teach is correct. Now then there's a whole bunch of other issues that, that we should probably talk about.
2: But also what I don't get uh, about that is that it could have been foreseen that uh, at some point there would have been a, a vaccine so like like 2 months ago we could have said, oh maybe like in the six following months there will be an announcement of a vaccine so why suddenly the the markets changing uh, overnight? Where whereas like people could have foreseen the yeah i think you
1: that's a great point greg because maybe we wouldn't have we wouldn't have foreseen that it would have been pfizer coming out with the vaccine first but it could have been foreseen that you know, the, this run that Netflix and Zoom are having is is probably not going to be forever. And so it's a matter of, yeah. So that that's what, so what you're, your point, Greg, from what I understand, is that we are too irrational. Like, when I say we, I mean, I'm not even mm. investing in these things, but I mean, when I say we, I mean the, the, the markets and the investors, we are too irrational that we're really attached to news, the effect of news and the effect of an announcements. More than we are to the fundamentals, so I, I think this is a way to to qualify what uh, what Lanny has been saying. So Lanny said the markets work and it goes in the right direction, and I completely agree with that. But perhaps it's going in this direction a bit too fast compared to what the actual fundamentals are. Is that what what you're saying,
0: Lanny? Um, so so I, I think I agree with that, and actually, with respect to at least one of these companies. Um, I think the reaction is does not reflect whatsoever what their value is going to be. Uh, I think Zoom, yes, I think we are just scratching the surface of you know what Zoom's you know role is going to be in our life, uh, or if not Zoom, you know like a a better product than Zoom. I mean, at one time we thought Ask Jeeves was going to be the revolutionary search engine. Um, so my point though is is that this idea of interacting with each other remotely um, this is here to stay uh, clearly and you know companies are going to start realizing the you know financial gains associated with this people are going to figure out how to smooth out the edges associated with this and so I think that you know when people thought oh well um, you know this is negative news for zoom I mean sure it's negative news for zoom in January maybe um, but it is not I think ultimately it's a drop in the bucket. Uh, with respect to like you know the effect on remote working generally, um, so I, I actually in that sense I think any you know big reaction in the price for Zoom is probably just people overreacting to this news and not thinking about the way in which the pandemic you know structurally changed our society. You know there are some things we're not going back to, and actually even with the grocery delivery, like I, I watched an episode of a, a local show called Les Uh, the other day and they were talking about um, exactly this you know how um, people's habits have changed as a result of the pandemic but when they talked to the people who you know were representing metro or loblaws or whatever they said you know this is here to stay i mean people have made big investments in infrastructure the clients like shopping this way um, you know there are things that you know there are uh, details that must be ironed out but you know people enjoy this convenience and so you know for example i mean uber eats was very popular before the pandemic it became more popular um but people like this convenience and so i think you know well clearly um you know airlines are significantly impacted by this um i don't know that you know zoom or or you know these delivery ones should be uh, affected as much as we saw maybe reflected in the change of their stock prices
1: yeah and i think this uh if we if we so I I don't know who what the CEO's of the CEO of Pfizer's name is, but the fact that let's talk about this. The fact that he sold how much of his stocks, Greg, uh,
2: for five million. So like fifty percent of what he owned uh,
1: before. Okay, so fifty percent of what he owned. We know how much what a percentage of Pfizer is. That is probably just a tiny. It's a tiny. It's tiny bit. Yeah. Tiny yeah. bit. Okay. But anyway, he okay. So he sold fifty percent of what he owned. I'm assuming that's also, you know, he's being paid with stock options and stuff like that. So I'm, like, like most See, it was
0: 60% of his total holdings.
1: Okay. And, but, but still potentially, is that a lot of money for him? And this is kind of my question. We, I, uh, probably not that much. I mean, it's 5 know, million I, is probably not, not a whole lot, right?
0: No. So I mean, he's a CEO of Pfizer. I imagine he's making $500,000, a million dollars a year just in salary. Yeah. Um, so this isn't, you know, I mean, for me, I would love, you know, 500, but it's, it's, it's different, right? For him. I understand. I
1: think. But, but still, okay. So the fact that he's selling, let's say, you know, I'm assume he's selling many stocks or at least I think there's something we need to talk about here because, um, if the markets were actually following the fundamentals of the company, why would he sell them today? So either he is counting on the fact that markets overreact to such news in which case he's expecting that, you know, the price of the stock is going to fall down a little bit afterwards, you know, still be higher than it was before the announcement, but it's still going to experience a bit of a drop. So in which case he wants to capitalize on this announcement effect, which would be understandable. Or, and I don't want to be cynical because I don't know what's going on in Pfizer, but one other reason would be, well, well yeah, we have this vaccine, and but maybe he doesn't know how it's going to actually play out and, 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 who knows? Maybe he doesn't have that much trust into in the product. And again, I don't want to say whether it's one way or the other. I'm I'm assuming there's a little, definitely some of the first thing that I've described, the fact that this overreaction. I don't know at all whether the vaccine is is worth it or not. Nobody knows
0: really, but. So it, I mean, the optics of this are terrible. Yeah. So in in both of those situations, it's not good. So in one of it. So those it's situations- never okay. It's
1: never a guy who who is uh, a <laughs> who is just you know,
0: wanting the world to get better.
1: That's that's all we know.
0: No, no, absolutely. But I mean, so the, the better interpretation was this guy was just trying to take advantage of the situation, mm-hmm. right? Um, so I guess whatever, you know, we live in a society where taking advantage of situations, I guess, is morally permissible. So So he did that. We don't think he's a good guy for doing it necessarily. If he thought that, you know, the price was being overshot and expected it to come down um but you know again morally permissible so fine um the more nefarious one of course is is that he knows something we don't and this is why uh executives have to publish their transactions with respect to the company's stock is so that you can try to infer why is this guy selling this stuff and so you know i I talked a little bit offline with you guys this is how i experienced this so pfizer announced that there might be a vaccine and i'm like oh this is great news like This is going really well, and then a few hours later, I find out that the CEO is selling stock, and I'm thinking, they are lying to us. Like, they had a positive result, he knows this is going nowhere, and he is going to dump his stock as quickly as possible. Um, That's exactly where my mind went, and so then I started, you know, reading past the clickbait, and the, you know, what was said was that the, um, the stock sale was actually automatically triggered. That... He had already set up a situation where when the stock hit a certain price, right, his brokerage firm Mm -hmm. would execute the trade at that price. And so, in fact, he didn't look at the price and say, hey, the price is really high today. I'm going to sell. It hit that predetermined trigger and his brokerage firm went ahead and did it without him. And like, so if we take this at face value, you know. Like, I can live with this, right? I mean, the guy was compensated in a particular way. He set up a plan that said, like, I'm not really, you know, I'm going to hold on to this until it hits a particular price. It hit that price. And so now, as long as he isn't feeding the market false information about the effectiveness of a vaccine, it becomes less nefarious, I think.
1: Yeah, it does. And besides, his job is to make the stock price go up. That's You, know, you, could, you could argue that this is proper management on, on his part to make the... To make Pfizer become the leader in this vaccine against COVID, and and maybe that's what happened. So I mean, I, like I said, I don't want to be too cynical about this, but like you said, but but the uh, we never know. We never know. We don't know what's really going on, right?
0: Well, and, and I mean, this is an important thing, just from the Pfizer's perspective. Like this didn't help them, right? So, you know, if they aren't the ones who end up coming first to market with the vaccine, because what we've also learned over the last few days is there is at least one more vaccine using the same technology, right? That is also at a similar stage of production, right? The Moderna vaccine. And so if Pfizer isn't the one that makes it first to market, right? They also took this reputation hit where it seemed like their CEO was profiteering off of this news. Um, And so like from a PR perspective, this was a disaster, um, you know, not even just from the re- like, you know, again, take away all the nefarious elements. It looked super bad. And like people don't read past the clickbait sometimes. And even if you do read past the clickbait, who knows what the source of that information is? So, you know, it doesn't help when you're trying to suppress misinformation about like big pharma manipulating the world. And then this guy's out there, you know, selling stock uh, the day his company makes a positive announcement. Um, And so, like, you know, I think that this was, you know, really, really ill-conceived. Someone should have thought about the consequences of this. And Pfizer may pay the price, you know, literally later on uh, as a result of the damage to their reputation.
2: So today's subject is about oligopoly, which is a small group of sellers, a small group of companies. uh, And in that small group, there can be competition, there can be cooperation. I think Lani, you have a precise example in mind.
0: Yeah, absolutely. So just to get us started, you know, one of the most obvious examples of a market that we would consider to be an oligopoly uh, is one that has, in fact, you know, very few uh, large players uh, competing directly against each other. And uh, one of the you know sort of interesting features about this is that the the type of competition is what we call strategic, in that you know when you decide as one firm you know what you want to do what you know, product you want to produce, what features you want it to have, what price you want to set, et cetera, you really have to consider carefully uh, how the other firms or other firm in that market might respond. And so the example I like to use most is competition between uh, Apple and Samsung with respect to smartphones. So these are the two largest players in the smartphone market. And if we just think about it from the perspective of Apple trying to come up with, you know, the newest version of the iPhone. When they're trying to decide, you know, what features should the iPhone have uh, and what price should we set it, uh, they can't just do this in a vacuum, right? They can't just say, like, okay, well, you know, we want all these cool features and it's going to sell for 1200 bucks. That's what's best for us. You know, who cares what Samsung is doing? Uh, obviously, they have to consider what Samsung might do in response or what Samsung might also be doing simultaneously in terms of how they're developing their product, what prices they might want to choose as well. And so this characterizes... You know a, a, you know, a market that we would call an oligopoly where firms strategically interact in the sense that, you know, their success depends not only on their own choices, uh, but on how their competitors react to those choices. And that, you know, can be you know, much more complicated to analyze, but of course characterizes most of the markets that we encounter. Well, it's it's more this
1: complicated because, you know, Apple has to consider what Samsung is going to do. But it has to consider the fact that Samsung is going to react what, to what Apple is going to do, and so on and so forth. Right? You have this kind of feedback loop of I need to know, I know this guy's going to react to what I do, and he knows that I'm reacting to what they're doing, and therefore I have to make this decision knowing that. And this is where we get into the to the weeds, and this is why this tool that we call game theory is 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 very useful we talked about it earlier in the earlier episode,
2: so here what you describe is a is a game theory, but uh with multiple like uh round infinity of rounds
1: and I don't so know about infinite right yeah, but yeah, there's but definitely a repeated at, game at there's
2: a lot of games mm-hmm. in mm-hmm. there and so uh, and so at, at, maybe at first they can compete on price by a lower by with a lower price so they can make more profits, but the more the game there is, the more they have interest to cooperate at some point. And maybe that's why, like the, they can increase the price or have like big margin, like big, uh, they can make profits on it uh, because of the repetition of the competition, which became then uh, a cooperation.
1: So, so the idea is that repetition makes it easier for firms to to collude and to agree to, to a high price, because in other words, basically, if you screw me today by being a very harsh competitor and you and you set a low price and you're trying to undercut me, then I can do the same tomorrow, and. And this is kind of my way of getting back at you.
0: Well, mm-hmm. Why wouldn't we just merge into one company and then, you know, make our decisions collectively and really stick it to the
1: consumers? Well, that would be great for the firms. But, you know, there's, first of all, there's, first of all, you can't just do that because there's, uh, there's these uh, court decisions that decide whether merging makes you too big of a player and gives you too much market power. Right? So these is, this is where, there's, this is why you see all these mergers that, uh, that, fail in the airline industry and other types of industries. Banking like in Canada. Bank, absolutely. Banking. Absolutely. And so you can't just simply do that. The other option would be to kind of talk to each other and agree, okay, guys, today we're going to increase our prices simultaneously. It's going to be great for us.
0: But that's also illegal in Canada.
1: It's illegal in a lot
0: of countries. So, so how could two companies you know, collude with each other in a way that, uh, you know, at least wouldn't be detectable, but I guess technically it would be legal. So that's what we call tacit collusion, because you can't just,
1: you can't have an explicit contract. You can't even have phone conversations. If they catch you talking to each other, saying, look, this week we're going to raise the prices, uh, you could get into trouble. And, that, and this, this is usually the types of evidence that they find in, and that they use in court to, to put you in jail if you decide to engage in this type of activity. If, uh, you yeah, the tacit collusion could be, you know, you kind of try something, see how the other reacts, and maybe uh, increase your price by a little bit. You know, we all know that uh, Bell or Videotron, every every year they increase their price by a dollar or a little more, you know, and then they see what happens. And usually the competitor does the same. And is this is this collusion or is this just, you know, the argument is that oh, our costs have increased, so we're increasing our thing. But, I mean, you know, nobody's naive here.
0: Right. Well, and, and there was a very famous example of this uh, just, you know, within the last couple of years where, Uh, You know, on a Monday, Air Canada raised their uh, baggage fees from $25 to $30. And on Tuesday, WestJet followed by raising their baggage fees from $25 to $30. There you go. You would think that this would contradict everything that we know about competition between firms, right? You know, WestJet uh, having the lower baggage fees for whatever those 24 hours uh, should have been able to benefit from attracting more customers, right? Because they would have the lower baggage fees. And so you'd think that they would have incentive to keep it at $25, and yet they immediately reacted by also increasing the baggage fees to $30. So I guess the the real puzzle here is, is, you know, what was WestJet thinking? Like, how did they interpret that price increase from Air Canada that instead of making them keep their price the same and benefit from a larger volume of sales to actually increase their price uh, going along with Air Canada? Because this does seem, you know, really puzzling, I think. My my point. I think with WestJet,
1: my my point is that they realize that um, this is not something. This price differential. If they stick to, to the low price, the twenty five dollar per bag, they probably wouldn't sustain that for very long because Air Canada would just go back to twenty five. And and having this advantage, this price advantage for a short time is probably less interesting than having having the you know the, the, the higher price, even if you have maybe a few lower sales for for an extended period of
0: time. This is kind of again a repeated game. Well, but the issue is is that you don't actually end up with lower sales. This is the genius of Air Canada's strategy, right, is that they, on Monday, increased the baggage fees from $25 to $30. And, you know, I'm just going to sort of make up, you know, like the thinking of WestJet upon seeing this, right? Mm -hmm. So one way that WestJet can interpret this is like, you know, wow, this is a great opportunity for us to have lower baggage fees and attract more customers than we already have. Or, right, we can interpret what Air Canada did as a signal as if they're saying to us, hey, WestJet, if you uh, also raise your baggage fees along with us, then we can both sell to the same amount of customers that we were before, but now we're getting $5 more each. That's, so that just unambiguously increases the profits in this situation. That's
1: what I meant. When I meant by lower sales is that compared to keeping your price at 25
0: Right. You know, yes, of course. Okay.
1: But, but, uh, but exactly. The whole point is that we're both agreeing to, we have the same pool, we're not going to, I guess... I don't know if a lot of people would just simply stop buying because of the $5 extra, and probably not. You know, they've probably thought about this. But it's just uh, going to be a minimal decrease in, uh, in consumers. But then you, know, you have this price increase that really makes it a boon for them. Both.
0: Well, exactly. And then once you realize right that this may be what happened uh, with Air Canada and WestJet over these baggage fees, you start to see these examples all over the place. right? So you can see the same thing in bank fees, Right, you know, all the major mm-hmm. banks in Canada charge fees to have a checking account. Why? Well, mm-hmm. because they can, and because none of their competitors have decided to offer accounts, you know, like fully functioning accounts anyway, mm-hmm. with no fees. Uh, you know, you see the same thing like you were talking about in competition in the you know cellular phone market. You know, you know locally between uh, Bell and, and Videotron, mm-hmm. uh, you see situations where you know they're charging really high prices. And no company has really come in and just tried to, you know, undercut them. And, you know, uh, an issue that's very near and dear to my heart is how much hockey sticks cost, where you have very few large producers of hockey sticks. These things are incredibly expensive. Uh, I have a very hard time believing that it reflects the cost in any way whatsoever. Uh, but you can imagine the same sort of dialogue going down internally, which is, you know, okay, Warrior just increased their stick price from 150 to 200 and now Bauer has to think, well... We can stay at 150 and get a few more customers, Mm -hmm. or we can go up to 200 and make a lot of money. Mm -hmm. And so, you know, one of the things that's really going on here is is something a little bit new to uh, our way of thinking about economics, which is this idea of looking at an action that someone's taken and trying to reason why they took that action. And so in the case of, you know, the Air Canada example, you know, WestJet could be reasoning, right, that Air Canada raised their price not just to collect more money, from baggage but to send us a signal that we can both exact more money
1: and but with the um, the implicit I, I think the implicit thing is that if uh, if you don't follow us then we'll go we'll come back to the initial price this yeah. is more of sending a signal with the idea that look this is what we're doing we're kind of offering you you know giving you a hand here offering you uh, this uh, this possibility of increasing prices together but if you don't follow us we'll probably go back down and so you take it or leave it.
0: So then, the, I have a question for you, which is it, so sorry. sorry it, please, uh, yeah. in, in other words,
1: what we're saying is that instead of having this explicit communication, this is how firms tacitly or implicitly communicate with to one another. And you know, by setting different prices, there is also ex- evidence of of firms setting a price. You know, if your price ends with ninety nine or with ninety seven or with ninety five, it's probably going to be a signal that. Well, this was more explicit, where they had a code where they would say, you know, if Far price ends with ninety-seven. That means we're going to decrease a little bit or increase a little bit. This is kind of—it's more pernicious, and they've been caught. But even without explicit collusion, you can also have this
0: communication happening
1: through the prices.
0: Right. Yeah. Absolutely. Um, so I guess the the question I had for you is, you know, like how fragile are these arrangements? So you know, if you have you know just two firms like Air Canada and WestJet or Bell and Videotron or Bauer and Warrior. You know, you're not sending or signals to lots of people. And Microsoft.
1: <laughs> sorry, sorry Sony.
0: Yeah, yeah absolutely. Yeah. Sure. Sony and Microsoft, right? Situations where you have very few firms, it seems like you see examples of implicit collusion. You know, let's say you had 20, you know, hockey, big, you know, or major hockey stick manufacturers. Is it likely that we would see this type of tacit uh, collusion take place then?
2: Well, I guess not, because they would, like, each company would have less market power. And when you have less market power, you're less than a price makers, but more than a price takers. <laughs> price takers, sorry. Uh, and so, because you have less market power, well, then like the, the price is more, yeah, it's more adjusted, like, through the consumers.
1: It's also this idea that if you want to have a functioning collusion, you have to be able to discipline everybody. You have to be able to to see who's who's basically cheating on the tacit agreement and unless you have that if you have 20 people if you have 20 uh, participants it's very difficult to to coordinate basically mm-hmm. and that's that's the whole name of the game is coordination if you have two or three players then it's probably a lot easier to observe what people are doing and understand what the prices should be but if you have 20 players chances are they're not very they're not they're not identical and and even if they were it's very difficult to say i'm going to punish this guy because he lowered his price but if you punish this one guy you're punishing everybody else so that means nobody's mm-hmm. going to want to stick to the this type of agreement because it's very dangerous. As soon as somebody cheats, then everybody loses. And so this is why, again, we're talking about these. Uh, it, it, the question was also, uh, is it easy to maintain these, uh, these collusive agreements? Or well, the thing is, that, like we saw, you know, if, if the type of communication, if the, the message space is what sometimes we call it, if the type of communication that you have is really through prices and you can't have anything else, it's very, first of all, very easy to misunderstand what the other is doing. And so it's very difficult to have coordination there. Because, again, you can't have any contracts. You can't go to the courts and say, look, this guy, you know, we agreed to cheat uh, the customers, but now, you know, he's actually uh, lowering his price and he shouldn't have. This was not the agreement. And no court is going to get to that. They'll put you in jail right away. So you can't really do that in most markets. Now, we all know of the OPEC, which is uh, a, a cartel, which is, I, I can't really say it's run by Saudi Arabia, but it's definitely Saudi Arabia is, is the huge player that really sets the tone for everybody else. But then there's also, we've all heard of of cartels, you know, drug cartels, human trafficking cartels, and and, and these are cartels that do survive
0: and that do endure what do you think that is. So I think they have, you know, options available to them that, that aren't available to, you know, like legal firms uh, in terms of enforcement, right? So if you know, Warrior decides to cut their hockey stick prices by 50%, it's very unlikely the CEO of Bauer is going to, you know, have the CEO of Warrior murdered Mm -hmm. uh, because he, you know, broke their implicit contract. Whereas if you're a part of a drug cartel, I think the understanding is that if you, you know, do something against the interests of the cartel, you know, you're going to get murdered. Um, And actually, even in the terms of the legal cartel, you mentioned OPEC, if you go against the wishes of OPEC, they could kick you out. And now you're no longer a part of the cartel, you're now on your own to compete with the cartel, mm-hmm. and so you know having an ability to punish either in a legal framework like uh, OPEC uh, or in, in a, an illegal framework like a drug or human trafficking cartel is really essential to keep these groups together when there's powerful incentives to cheat
1: exactly and for these illegal illegal firms, I mean you keep in mind that the activity itself that they're engaging in is illegal, so it 's not like they're going to be afraid of of doing just an, an extra illegal thing so this is why it 's very Believable. It's credible. It's a credible threat, and and again, that's what that's what gets people in line is you need to have threats, but these threats have to be credible.
0: Well, and and uh, to go back to something that we were talking about last day when we talked about the um, environmental treaties, uh, this is you know one of the major criticisms of you know the, the way in which the world is going about these environmental treaties, which is to have these you know non-binding agreements. You know, we all agree to cut back our emiss- on our emissions, but no way of enforcing
1: the agreement will public sh- publicly shame you you know they'll <laughs> say oh this country's so bad it's just not respecting the agreement that's pretty much the extent of of the of the threat that they can make a credible threat they can make
0: right mm. well economists tend not to buy into these things all the time but you know sometimes it can work and i mean on an individual social level shaming i think has been effective but maybe on a global scale exactly we're talking about i, I, was, being sarcastic. Yeah, I politics. was being sarcastic i don't no. think in
1: terms of uh I don't think in terms of a nations, it's uh, it has a huge impact. I mean, individually, we all we all know that this, uh, and you told this example offline about uh, about British Columbia that has moved his, uh, that they have moved their recycling campaign, you know, from, oh, you should recycle, it's good for the environment, to if you're not recycling, you're a piece of trash yourself.
0: Right? Absolutely. Yeah, yep. that's exactly the way they've done it. And I, I wish I had looked to say what the new, the three R's that have, you know, uh, replace, reduce, reuse, recycle in British Columbia, but it is about like, like shaming people. Like if you see somebody like throw a recyclable container into the garbage, like you should go up and say like, hey, like what are you doing? Mm. Like don't you know that that can be recycled? Um, and
1: you only know, in a, Canada.
0: Yeah, well, I mean, as a behavioral economist, uh, you know, with the, you know a very very small understanding of human psychology, like I 100% believe that shaming people is going to work better. Uh, at least in this case, that the the stick is going to be more uh, effective than the carrot. Hmm. Um, hopefully not always, though. Yeah, we don't want to start getting cynical, right? No, no, for yeah. sure not, for sure not. But, you know, I think different people react to things in different ways. So uh, maybe I'll leave it at that.
2: Well, also maybe like shaming on the long term, like if you get used to it, maybe it's not working at some point. Like It's working when it's new and so that like, you feel ashamed. But it's like, if you always live in a, in a world where everyone is shaming each other.
1: Yeah, I mean, uh, uh, this may be digressing a bit, but negative publicity. If you think of smoking, you know, the, there's been mm. this huge campaign in France about against smoking. You have on cigarette packs, you have these pictures of, of people with cancers, and it's disgusting. And it, it's, it doesn't work long run. It doesn't work much, in fact.
0: And it's
1: uh, mm. just no effect.
0: Yeah, people just become desensitized. To completely. It. Actually, that's a, that's quite interesting, right? Because I guess the success with getting people to stop smoking is to convince people, you know, that it's a better choice for your health not to smoke. Exactly. And that it's a that... poor choice for your health to smoke.
1: Especially, I think, with smoking, which is in itself, you could say, a rebellious behavior. So, you know, it's kind of, yeah, fuck that, I'm going to smoke because I'm a rebel, whatever. And so, you know, if it's, against, but it's my choice, if
0: it's against my, my better interests, well, who are you to tell me? Well, and this is a cultural phenomenon that I just don't understand coming from Vancouver. Almost nobody smokes in Vancouver. Yeah. And it is so socially unacceptable to mm-hmm. smoke in Vancouver that, I mean, you really are like a, a pariah yeah. if you're a smoker. Like, uh, I had a colleague who's a smoker and he hid it from us for years. I mean, probably I worked with him for eight years before I found out oh. that he was like a regular smoker. And he went to massive lengths. He had like an outfit to go wear to smoke.
1: Oh, so he wouldn't smell?
0: Yeah. I mean, it was just, you know. That's crazy. and Because in, in Vancouver, I mean, it's just not okay uh-huh. to be a smoker, let alone to smoke anywhere. <laughs> um, you know, Montreal is different. Yeah. And, and there's more French people as well.
1: <laughs> maybe. Uh, maybe. Or, or Europeans in general, I guess.
0: Yeah, yeah, yeah exactly.
1: Speaking of smoking and firms uh, colluding and competing, you know, sometimes the, the laws themselves, they can, they can help businesses by preventing them from competing against each other. Even unknowingly, you know, some, you, there's this famous case against big tobacco where, where it's forbidden to advertise cigarettes to children in the U.S. And, uh, and the idea was that this would probably hurt these uh, big tobacco companies. But in fact, it actually helped them. Their, their profits have increased because now they don't have to waste money trying to steal consumers uh, away from each other. It's just, uh, this, this, could, this is one impact of, of public policy on this whole strategic interaction thing.
2: Oh, sorry, can I have two questions? Mm-hmm. But like, do do you know why uh, in Vancouver nobody's smoking? Is it because of public policies or just like cultural? Or I, maybe they never smoke. So there's a lot of
1: Asian people and Asian people tend to smoke, right?
0: Yeah, but, yeah. but we, uh, like, no, so that couldn't have been a big deciding factor because the, the, the first sort of large wave um, of immigration happens at the end of the 80s. And we already have outlawed smoking in public places by like 95 or something. Mm um so like there was a strong like anti-smoking sentiment uh already there and uh before you know Hong Kong gets transferred over in 1998 which is like the big second wave um of immigration the there's you already can't smoke you see mm-hmm. so so I don't I mean I, you're you're right like um people coming from China are smoking a lot more frequently than people who were you know like um in British Columbia beforehand but Uh, I don't think that has any factor in this because really, like, it was, you know, 1995 and Mm -hmm. you can't smoke indoors anymore. Um, So it was uh, really, really early for B.C. And so it sort of, you know, maybe gets to Greg's question, which is, you know, what is it about the public in Vancouver that was so against smoking that we moved really, really early, much earlier than the rest of Canada, Mm -hmm. uh, for example? Um, I I really don't know how to answer that. I mean, you know, culturally, Vancouver is different Mm -hmm. than the rest of Canada. Uh, yep. certainly like politically, like, you know, you can see that the, it's a little bit more progressive. I don't know why that has anything to well, do it's with the California of Canada, basically. A little bit. And and it's got a bit a little bit of that like sort of healthy vibe mm-hmm. because, you know, for you know, a long time the only thing to do in Vancouver was to like go for a hike, go for a bike ride, <laughs> go for a swim. Um, you know, it, it's a healthier lifestyle. You know, smoking I don't think is, you know, I mean certainly isn't connected with a healthy lifestyle. Nope. If not being completely inconsistent. Mm-hmm with a healthy, healthy lifestyle. So it might just be, you know, that, right? More of an, a California-type influence or West Coast-type influence uh, than the rest of Canada. And, and I can tell you, as someone from Vancouver, uh, I more it's likely that I have more in common with the, the an average person from Seattle or Portland or San Francisco than I do with an average person from Toronto or Montreal, mm-hmm. except for hockey.
1: Ted?
2: Also, like, so... And about, like, policies against uh, smoking cigarettes. Uh, like in france like one of the one of, one of the other policies uh besides the fact that they they put like horrible image on the pack also like they each year almost they increase the price of cigarettes but like like the taxes on it like one euros and one euro and like right now like one pack is like uh, more than ten euros uh sure. which is a yeah. lot yeah, like the, and even more if you're like smoking one pack a day or, or and uh, but it doesn 't seem to have that much an impact on the behavior of, of the people. Well, yeah, and well, especially... that's the whole
1: point. That's why they're taxing it so hard, <laughs> yeah. right? Because they, they know it's a, it's a habit that people can't shake.
2: Well, well yeah, but, but the idea behind the fact that they increase the tax is, well, what they say is that uh, it should decrease the number of people smoking.
1: I think that's bullshit. I, I mean, I don't think they mean that. They probably mean that for new smokers. Yeah. Mm. But for existing smokers, I, I don't know, I think a better... A better way to try to argument this, even though I think it may not be completely sincere, would be to say, well, you know, these guys are imposing tremendous health costs on health care costs on, on the system, and these health care costs are increasing, and therefore we need to finance those, and it makes sense, you know, to, to have those pay for it. But I think it's really a tax grab for most of it. Obviously. So I only learned recently that
0: this is how big tobacco was taken out in the United States, was the court case against them was brought by the United States, uh, not the country, States okay. <laughs> um, they they brought a class action lawsuit against uh, Big Tobacco over this idea, right? Because Big Tobacco had been very successful in convincing the courts that at the individual level this was a choice that people mm-hmm. knew the risks and they made a choice to take that risk and they ended up with lung cancer. That's their problem. Mm-hmm. Um, and you know, I guess like that's a consistent argument. Uh, some people probably agree that some judges did right. Mm-hmm. So. Uh, but you know, ultimately, big tobacco had to answer for these externalities—the healthcare costs—and the states didn't sign, didn't make a decision, didn't sign up to be on the hook for you know billions of dollars worth of healthcare costs. Mm. And you know, once big tobacco, of course, had to admit that it was bad for people's health. Right now, in some ways, they were responsible. And this is what really, like, legally mm-hmm. uh, ended up having bite against them um, was that uh, it had this like uh, healthcare cost effect. Yeah. yeah.
1: There's a call, there's a call, there's a call for you, there's a call
2: on the phone for you. So this week, we received a message from Emric. Let's listen to it. Hey, it's Emric. I would like to know what do you think about Bitcoin? Uh, So as you may know, this digital asset is characterized by a fixed supply of 21 million. So it is a scarce asset. It also means it is a hard money in opposition to fiat money like CAD, USD, or Euro. Consequently, is our wealth threatened by the huge uh, debts and money printing around the world due to, well, COVID-19? If so, do you think Bitcoin is a good strategy to protect our wealth by investing our cash in it? Thank you.
0: Uh, so, I mean, it's easy to answer the, uh, last part of that. No, I think it's a terrible idea. Um, you know, the, it's funny, right? That people think that, you know, because, you know, money isn't real or it's a fiat currency, or you can increase the supply that somehow this, you know, delegitimizes it. Um, except for the fact that the most important role that money has in our society is for facilitating exchange. And the fact that you can take, you know, fiat currency and go buy something with it this afternoon is proof of its legitimacy. You prove its legitimacy dozens of times a day. And so Bitcoin doesn't have the same feature, you know, like you can't just go and buy anything you want with Bitcoin. So like at this point, like, you know, you can speculate on the value of Bitcoin and maybe it has this interesting feature of having a fixed supply Um, But at the end of the day, like, unless Bitcoin can find a way to, you know, take itself from being this, you know, speculative vehicle uh, to something that actually functions as a medium of exchange, I really don't see it as having any value uh, going forward uh, for, uh, you know, uh, storing your wealth. Uh, it's, It's completely artificial. It's actually more artificial than our fiat currency, which at least can buy you goods and services. Uh, So I I just, I I don't really understand this way of thinking. I think it really just, you know, emanates from a fundamental misunderstanding of what money is. And, you know, I I know it's complicated. And so, you know, that, you know, it can be difficult to understand and and things that are difficult for us to understand, we sometimes fear uh, or, you know, we want to avoid things that we find harder to understand. But like, how is like a super complicated computer algorithm uh less or somehow more salient for people than something that is backed by your own government and that you use dozens of times a day
1: oh I know there's a couple of arguments. one is that people don't like the fact that that your transactions are being known are monitored and then and, and this uh the, the cryptocurrency you know crypto in there is the fact that what you do is untraceable, and so that makes a lot of people somehow relieves a lot of people i'm assuming on the dark web it's probably a lot more useful than than for most of us but there have been attempts you know there have been attempts to to address what you're saying in fact the the fact that it's not an actual medium of exchange Uh, i remember it's been a couple years now but i remember there were some stores where you could actually use bitcoins or you could use some other cryptocurrencies i like i'm this is kind of foreign to me i've never even tried to look into it but it seems to me that there have been attempts i You know, we're several years later now, Bitcoin's been around and you're right. We don't, it's definitely not a generalized medium of exchange for sure.
2: But also if the, if in the future at some point, like maybe in, in some decades, uh, Bitcoin could be like, you could buy anything uh, in the streets with Bitcoin. Would it be a better currency knowing that uh, like no uh, central bank in the world could impact uh, its, its supply and then its price, its values?
1: Go. I'm gonna. I'm gonna leave. Leave it over to Lanny because he has more to say than I do. Because I'm no macroeconomist and I've never taught macroeconomics. But it seems to me that there is a, there are advantages to having a central bank
0: um,
1: adjusting the supply of money, the money supply. Uh, so I'll leave it at that, and, and Lenny can probably develop that.
0: So you know, I'm I, I'm no expert in uh, modern monetary theory but you know if you know our listeners are interested in this you know you can go on youtube and find many reliable sources explaining modern monetary theory and what the role of central banks is in our economy and how this you know you know fear of them printing money uh, is totally artificial so it is absolutely the case that there are countries that have mismanaged their money supply that's led to hyperinflation and a massive reduction in people's wealth so this can happen but we don't see those things happening Uh, in, you know, like Canada, at least. And we also know that the central bankers are keenly aware of the consequence of expanding the money supply, which is inflation. And they have policy tools to address this. The most, you know, salient policy tool is the interest rate, which currently is at 0%. And so with the interest rate at its lowest possible level, and we're still not experiencing massive inflation, right? This means that there's room to increase the money supply, for example, in order to, provide public services right especially in the time of a pandemic uh, without risking experience uh, experiencing high inflation because if you start to experience the higher inflation the uh, the bank can you know tick up the uh, interest rate by a little bit and try to put the brakes on it so you know the people who are thinking about you know should we be you know increasing the money supply or decreasing the money supply are thinking about this in the context of the real negative consequence which is you know, the possibility of, of rampant inflation. And they're balancing these two things. And, and so I think really all of this just comes from a misunderstanding that, you know, someone out there is irresponsibly printing money and throwing it up in the air. Uh, and this is bad for all of us, when in fact, you know, the government's ability to create money is part of how we're dealing with the current economic situation that we're in. And without this policy tool available to us, we would all be suffering to a much larger extent right now. And a fixed money supply like Bitcoin that isn't controlled by the government is not going to do anything for us.
1: So uh, I like your rant, uh, Lanny. I actually thought you were going to go the other way because you've said on a couple of occasions how much <laughs> you hate banks. You know, and and I, I would really like to hear your, your opinion on that.
0: Well, so I don't let. So here, this is the part where I can identify with the, the Bitcoin people. I don't like commercial banks, and the reason that I don't like commercial banks is that I think that they have, you know, taken advantage of their political power in order to reduce competition in their industry, really to the detriment of consumers. Um, and there is an argument for reducing competition that's based on the stability of financial markets, but in my opinion, that is way out of balance in Canada, where we have five major banks that dominate the landscape, and really just, you know, four of them are are truly large and if you want to really get down to it only really three of them are truly large Um, so the point is is that you know this lack of competition is bad for consumers we shouldn't trust commercial banks uh whatsoever except we should trust them to take advantage of us whenever they possibly can and we should trust the government to back them up on that based on my, my experience but the central bank is different Right, the central bank doesn't have a profit motive. The central bank isn't trying to charge its users fees, you know, in order to look at their account. Right, what they're trying to do is manage the Canadian economy as a whole and help facilitate right the uh, financial transactions of the government. And so they have a very important role in our society that is, in some sense, orthogonal to the way in which the commercial banking um system is structured but again I, I will also mention right it's not like you can have you know unfettered competition in the commercial banking sector 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 we saw how that works out in the united states right so there is a balance there so i'm not saying that you know we you know there is you know we need to just let everything like deregulate the, fu- the banking sector for the benefit of consumers but so again like i said i'm sympathetic to people who don't trust commercial banks but when we're talking about the money supply this isn't a a commercial banking issue this is a central banking issue and you know this is the way that governments fund their expenditures so if you want you know to have you know like serb payments or if you want to have you know social supports or infrastructure investment when we're in recessions that are tools that can help mitigate this harm right we need the ability to control the money supply if you want to take that away we lose that tool. We lose that flexibility, and we all suffer more, especially in the situation that we're in.
1: Yeah. Okay. So, but there's a there's a central bank aspect, but there's also the secrecy aspect, you know, which has to do with the the commercial bank side. So the fact that some people say that uh, cryptocurrency is interesting because you you know you, you don't reveal information about w- what it is you do with your money, and in, in this age where everybody has information about us all the time, that there's this this uh, sentiment that we should try to keep our information for ourselves but uh, what I think and I don't know how how cryptocurrency has evolved in the last couple of years but I don't think they've uh, solved this issue of credit right if you want to you want to get a credit score and if you want to borrow money to buy a house or whatever you need to have some sort of credit score if every if everything you do is through is through is through Bitcoin or some sort of some other cryptocurrency then then you have no way of showing that you are a responsible borrower and this is really gonna it's gonna affect a, a large part of the economy if we were to move massively towards bitcoin so i guess if we were to vote i would say that i don't know what greg thinks uh, he hasn't said much about it yet but i think Lanny, you think uh, bitcoins are not going to be the solution i do not think so either greg what do you think
2: mm, well i'm not a macro guy either, but. <laughs> i don't think it would be the solution also but i also think it like so a lot of people say that uh, bitcoin was so uh temporary that it will die in a few years and all and i guess it's a system that could work uh meanwhile the, the still the central banks are working as well but uh i don't know i, I wouldn't put my own all, all of my economy uh on yeah in, i, in I B- wouldn't in put much either
1: uh, so lenny mentioned some uh you could go and look at, at modern macroeconomics and i'm going to direct you to a different podcast which is or well, not a different show which is about last year's but JP Sears on his YouTube channel has this bit about about bitcoin it's a 5 or 6 minute video and i think it it says everything you need to hear about bitcoin to understand <laughs> how it works and to make your your opinion uh, of course i'm joking but i think it's definitely a good video
0: so, so this is where i'll once more plug this modern monetary thing because you know so much of what i think is driving bitcoin is an ignorance about how our monetary system works and one of the other you know sort of ways that we show our ignorance is this you know like uh balanced budget fetishism right like this idea that like budgets have to be balanced And for households, like, this is true, but it's very clearly not the case for governments that budgets have to be balanced. And, you know, so it's really just a, a, you know, a dog whistle for conservatives uh, rather than anything substantial. I mean, there's no economist, uh, you know, at least a credible economist these days who believes in this. And, you know, modern monetary theory is trying to shatter, right, this common sense notion that there's some value in and of itself of balancing a budget. Um, Now, I'm not saying that you should spend, you know, without regard for anything, there are consequences, and that consequence would be inflation, right? But the point is, is that it doesn't mean that you always have to balance the budget. Uh, You know, so for example, if everyone just balanced their household budget all the time, right, nobody would ever get to take a student loan or get a mortgage, Where no firm would ever be able to invest in any kind of technology or research and development. Like the notion that budgets have to be balanced all of the time is patently absurd. And modern monetary theory is trying to address this. And so I think that, you know, this is another issue where, you know, a bunch of stuff happens every day in the real world, or at least there's a a very salient real world discourse that's really based on nothing or a misunderstanding.
1: So is that is that also related to the fact that you know, whenever you do the um, your imports and exports, and you want you want you always want to export more than you import. Like this, this seems to <laughs> kind of ridiculous to me. Like, cause I, you know, I, and again, if you look at it from the household level, I, I feel like you know, I buy stuff and I sell maybe my my labor, and yeah, so it's fine if I if I, if I do one way or the other. There's no, I don't need to have more exports than I have imports. I'm buying a lot of things, and it's good. It's never a bad thing to buy things.
0: Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. Right. And, and also just this recognition that like we live in like a closed system. Right. So, you know, like I always find this funny. Right. So I actually, Donald Trump is really great at this. So so he's he's quite great at explaining why you want um, like American companies to have more access to other markets. Right. And you want to restrict the access of other countries to those markets as if like you could do this in a vacuum. Except the problem is, is that if you like, for example, limit China's ability to sell stuff in the United States to try to benefit people in the United States, well, they're just going to limit people in the United States' ability to sell stuff to China, right? So like, you can't really like this idea that you want to somehow, you know, sell have the most exports with the minimum imports. Is again, it just doesn't make any sense. Like, it violates like basic accounting principles. Um, but you know, people don't see this type of stuff and. And and again, I'm not entirely blaming people, right? Like, we do tend to view uh, problems in isolation. And, you know, actually one of the big contributions of economics is the concept of general equilibrium, right? A way of trying to think about how systems interact, particularly uh, economic systems, uh, so that we can try to contemplate, you know, what are all the different levers, Right. So when we pull one lever, what effect does it have on the other lever and how do we balance these things? And so I I think, yeah, the the export one, I think, was another good example. So ultimately, you know, what am I saying? You know, take more economics courses. You'll understand the world better. And then like you can, without any guilt whatsoever, gamble on Bitcoin. (laughs) Like I have absolutely no judgment for somebody who decides they want to spend their Friday evening playing poker. Right, if that's what you enjoy doing and that's how you want to spend your money, that is fine with me. But don't promote poker to me as a good way of managing our economy. Um, that sounds crazy. Well, we hope you
1: enjoyed this episode and see you next week. See
0: right. you. <laughs> see you, Greg. Justin. Bye. <laughs>